0: Today I'm playing a telephone interview with Gisu Nia. Gisu is the Executive Director of the Iran Human Rights Documentation Center. Before becoming the Executive Director, she was on a trial team at the International Criminal Court in The Hague. Prior to that, she was a legal analyst at the Iran Human Rights Documentation Center and led field investigations in Turkey and Europe to collect documentation and interview over 150 survivors of human rights abuses perpetrated by the Islamic Republic of Iran. Prior to her tenure at the Iran Human Rights Documentation Center, Gisu worked on war crimes trials at the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, where she represented former government ministers from Bosnia and Kosovo in pre-trial, trial, and appellate proceedings. Her last duties at the International Criminal Court were to assist in proceedings related to allegations of crimes against humanity committed during the 2007-2008 post-election violence in the Republic of Kenya. Gisu completed her undergraduate studies in political science at the University of California, Los Angeles, and received her law degree from Rutgers University, Camden School of Law. She continues to lecture and publish widely on developments in international criminal justice, as well as the rule of law and post-conflict and transitional societies and the human rights situation in Iran. I started the interview by asking Kisu to tell us how the Iran Human Rights Documentation Center was founded and what is its mission.
1: IHRDC, the Iran Human Rights Documentation Center, was founded in 2004, so we're very close to 10 years now, and it was formed by Iranian expats, so people who had been exiled, who saw a gap, I think, in the work that was being done on human rights in Iran. Hayam Ahavan is one of the founders, and he is an international criminal lawyer, had worked as you know, a legal advisor to the prosecution and the uh, tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, and had a real sense that there needed to be a concerted documentation effort so that a lot of documents about you know, human rights abuses inside Iran would be meticulously archived and available in both Farsi and English. Farsi for Iranians inside Iran who could potentially be put in danger should they be collecting these documents themselves, and if it was seen as something subversive by the government, and in English, for the international community, so as to raise awareness at the United Nations and, you know, with different international institutions and governments about what the situation on the ground in Iran is today. So I think that was the view as to establishing what patterns of human rights abuses through collection of witness testimonies, through court documents, that show, you know, unfair trials and and things like that, to then one day maybe be used to establish sort of justice and accountability on the part of Iranian officials and other authorities who have ordered or been complicit in and who have perpetrated these abuses.
0: Now, how is it that you found yourself getting involved with this organization?
1: My background is in international criminal justice, so for several years, I was working on war crimes and crimes against humanity trials in The Hague, at the former uh, the tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, and also at the International Criminal Court. At one point, when I was on trials at the ICTY, so the Yugoslav Tribunal, some of your listeners may recall that there was presidential elections in Iran in June 2009, and the result was disputed, and then there was a massive civil protest. Everyday Iranians were streaming into the streets of Tehran and other major cities protesting the election results, and they thought it was a stolen election. You know, are seas of green, basically like green movement supporters that were in support of this reformist president candidate, Mousavi. So this was being broadcast on CNN and other major networks, and I was in court, you know, kind of following this online, as we tend to do uh, with our monitors in front of us, but I was sort of following this, you know, my full attention was on it. I saw that there was a lot of people trying to g- demand their civil and political rights. And so I became very involved in that, and this is why I was in The Hague, and I just started thinking, you know, I need to come and work on Iran human rights issues full time, and I'd like to apply what I've done in The Hague which is conduct investigations about, you know, mass crimes and collect evidence on that basis to apply that framework to Iran. And so I really did my homework in terms of finding a group that I thought was doing that work, and Iran Human Rights Documentation Center did feel like the best fit, because in essence, it is collecting um, testimony, not for the purposes of a criminal investigation per se, more for, you know, human rights reporting purposes, but one of the ultimate aims is that this body of evidence would be used in a tribunal of some sorts or maybe a truth commission of some sorts on, um, on human rights abuses inside Iran. So it seemed like the best fit. And then I, I came to the group and eventually um, I was offered the position of executive director and I began that in November
0: 2011. Now you had left the center for a time and then came back. Why was that?
1: I was asked to uh, return to The Hague to work on a case before the International Criminal Court, and that was involving post-election violence in Kenya. That had happened, if you recall, in 2007, 2008. There was this election, and and there was um, resulting ethnic riots and tensions that, that came out of the sort of election uh, dynamics, and then there was, you know, rafts of killings, Um, and so I was asked to work on proceedings in connection to that. So I spent a summer doing that, and then I returned to IHRDC in the fall when I was offered the the post of executive director.
0: Now, the IHRDC investigates all kinds of human rights abuses, and... I imagine a lot of those have to do with religious persecution, and in particular, the persecution of the Baha'is in Iran. I was wondering if you could give our listeners a perspective of why, from your understanding, the Baha'i faith is persecuted in Iran.
1: You are right. We do work on a range of issues, and one Um, issue that we've spent quite some time on is the abuses perpetrated against uh, members of the Baha'i faith in Iran. And that has a long history. The abuses did not start with the 1979 revolution. However, once this current Islamist government came to power, those abuses certainly intensified. And I think that most human rights defenders and advocates would agree that Baha'is are one of the most persecuted minority groups inside Iran today. As to a view of why that is, there is, I think as many of your listeners are probably aware, um, there is a view that the Baha'i faith is not a true religion. That's what the Islamic Republic believes. So the rights that are afforded other religious minorities, such as Christians or um, Jews, are not afforded. To the Baha'is, so they're viewed as infidels, and therefore you see cases in which Baha'is are arrested, um, there is denial of education, of higher education to um, Baha'i youth, there's land confiscations, closures of Baha'i-owned businesses and workplaces, so it's a serious problem, and it's something that we've focused quite a lot of attention on, and I know that the international community has focused attention on.
0: And do you know why the the Iranian authorities don't recognize the Baha'i faith as one of the legitimate religions?
1: That's a very complicated question with a complicated answer. I mean, there's there's, you know, what is written and then there's what's in practice. So unfortunately, there's been quite a propaganda campaign against the Baha'i faith in Iran that has been definitely organized and also promoted by this regime. Um, that can take the form of you know, literature that's distributed in schools that uh, features, I mean, one example, there was a, a, a character in one of the storybooks that was supposed to be, you know, quote unquote, some sort of evil character, and he was given the name the Bab, which as you know, goes back to figures in the Baha'i faith. And so I think there's this sort of demonization process that has happened that we closely track and document. And so sometimes that propaganda also, t- it can spiral out of control. So there's sort of, you know, the societal element to it, and then there's the governmental element to it in the sense that they play an active role in, in further spreading these misconceptions about the faith and promoting, you
0: know, hate-based practices. From my understanding, the reason that they don't recognize the Baha'i faith is because the Baha'i prophet founder, Baha'u'llah, declares himself as a messenger of God after Muhammad, and the Islamic regime doesn't uh, recognize any uh, messenger of God after Muhammad and therefore doesn't recognize the religion of the Baha'i faith, and therefore doesn't offer adherence of the Baha'i faith constitutional rights. Is that am I right about that?
1: Yeah, um, you're certainly right that the timeline pay, plays a great part as to why the Baha'i faith is not recognized. As your listeners listeners will know, the Baha'i faith did originate inside Iran and according to the faith, the message was delivered after the Prophet Muhammad. That's why, for example, Christianity and Judaism is recognized, for example. So unlike those monotheistic religions, the Baha'i faith is not recognized. But yeah, you're you're correct.
0: You told an interesting story about an experience you had with a Baha'i that you had uh, witnessed at the International Criminal Court. Could you tell us that story?
1: In fact, it was a witness that came to testify before the Iran Tribunal, which was a people's court that happened in The Hague in the end of October of 2012. So it's not a legally binding court, but the Iran Tribunal was set up as sort of people's justice, basically a way to adjudicate crimes that allegedly happened in Iranian prisons in the 1980s. And the proceedings were at the end of October. There were two parts to the Siron Tribunal. There was a truth commission that happened in London in June of 2012. And then there was proceedings that happened before a panel of international judges in The Hague at the Peace Palace in the end of October. And one of the witnesses, I mean, there was 18 Viva Voce witnesses, I believe. So 18 witnesses that gave live testimony before the court in these three-day proceedings. And one of the witnesses was a Baha'i lady. Her name is Ruhi Jahanpur. And she spoke about her time in Iranian prison in the the 1980s and about the fact that everyone, she, she was arrested and she was arrested in connection to her faith, activities in connection to that. And all her female cellmates, her friends who had been arrested along her they had all eventually been executed by the Islamic Republic and Ruby John largely through chance and you know maybe a lack of organization on the part of the authorities had been somehow released and so she escaped a death sentence or the ultimate implementation of a death sentence but her her friends were not as fortunate and she gave a very compelling and moving testimony in The Hague about those experiences and, you know, the treatment that they received, um, that her and other members of her faith received in the 80s and how the Iranian authorities regarded them. I should also mention um, that at those proceedings, after Ruhi poor gave her testimony, somebody by the name of Abbas Abbas Mazahiri, who had been part of a group called Hojatyeh in Iran in the 80s. This is a group that participated in anti-Baha'i activities and often resorting to violence, Um, kind of like a a loosely organized, I don't want to say militia, but like a loosely organized force that would enforce religious practice and one of their aims was directed at targeting Baha'is. And when he heard her testimony, he approached her afterwards and begged for her forgiveness. He was crying. He had since renounced the organization. He had been recruited at a very young age when he was maybe 17 or 18, so he was really just a child. And he was so terribly sorry for the way that a group that he had been part of, how they had treated Ruhi Jahampur and other members of the Baha'i faith and so he was asking for her forgiveness. I was so moved by this conversation that they were having where he admitted wrongs that the group had perpetrated when he was part of them, and through his reaction and her willingness to forgive, I actually filmed the conversation, and it's on our website at org. You can go and watch this conversation between... Ruhi Jahanpur and somebody who had perpetrated abuses against Baha'is, and this dialogue that they have decades after those events happened.
0: Recently, I've been hearing on social networks about infants being imprisoned. Do you have any information on that?
1: If you mean specifically the young children of Baha'i women who've been imprisoned in Semnan, Yes. At ICHRDC, we have been tracking abuses against the Baha'i community in Semnon and also Gorgon. In recent months, there's been alarming spikes and abuses perpetrated against members of the Baha'i faith in those cities in Iran. There are all kinds of different reports, ranging from children in the community are being listed at school and, and targeted for certain things. And some people are reporting they're being monitored by agents that are tracking them, and the high-owned factories and shops and businesses have been closed, and there's been no legal recourse for individuals seeking answers as to why through legal means. Um, but one particularly disturbing development is that for some of the individuals who were arrested and are now imprisoned in Semnon, two of them are infant children, are in jail with them, and are being denied basic things like healthcare, because one of the children, I believe, had developed a really bad ear infection, and I think they were forced to transfer them to hospital when the hospital when the situation got really bad. But this sheds greater light on a far more endemic problem in Iran, which is the treatment of children and the fact that often children do accompany their mothers into jail. That's seen as something, you know, to keep the mother and the child together. And certainly in other countries that happens as well. But the issue is that the children do need to be given adequate care once they are incarcerated. And the point is that the mothers themselves are prisoners of conscience. These are not women who have been convicted of murder, robbery, you know, any other major crime. They're in jail strictly because of their beliefs and on trumped-up charges of endangering national security and spreading propaganda and other vague allegations that the authorities have brought against them, which essentially are just reference to the fact that they were practicing the Baha'i faith and may have been promoting the religion. So they should not be in jail in the first place.
0: Are there any particular stories that you've come across in the documentation of these persecutions that particularly moved you?
1: You know, one core part of our work is that we do take investigative missions to Europe, Turkey, Iraqi Kurdistan to go interview witnesses in person. Because we can't go and conduct these investigations in a transparent way inside Iran itself, We go to areas where there's large communities of Iranian refugees and, you know, people who had left Iran years ago and more recent arrivals, and we go and interview them about what happened to them. You know, not just on paper, but in person, just incredibly moving accounts of what people have endured and suffered. I can give you a few examples. One thing that was really moving, a recent experience of mine, was speaking to a young lady very elegant. I, I had no idea what her background was. I knew that she was a Baha'i, but we were actually not meeting in a witness context, but more just to talk about other projects. And it emerged that she had actually just left Iran, and she was now seeking to apply to school, you know, abroad. And she was part of the BIAHE, so she had her graduate degree from the. I believe it's the Baha'i Institute of Higher Education. Yeah, maybe we
0: should give our listeners, not all listeners are Baha'i, so maybe we should give our listeners a little background on what the Baha'i Institute of Higher Education is.
1: Yeah, the BIHE, as it's referred to, is a parallel system of education in Iran. As I mentioned before, Baha'is are often denied the right of education. The Islamic Republic Authorities will expel the highs from schools under other pretexts. They'll look for other excuses to reject someone, and um, there is a sort of mandatory testing that one has to go through to be accepted into university, aside from just, you know, the standardized test of the Concours, which tests your abilities, but there's also a Gozinesh. It's called Gozinesh, and this is sort of a kind of religious, moral, ethical exam, if you want to put it that way. And a lot of times, if they want to deny entry to somebody of the Baha'i faith, they'll just say that they failed their Gozinesh. And so what the Baha'i community, which is a very educated community historically inside Iran, had been seeing was that more and more of their Baha'i youth were being denied the opportunity to pursue their studies while living inside the country. And that became a great concern for members of the community, and so they formed this basically underground system of education to make sure that the youth of their community were educated. And it's an extraordinary effort. Um, it happens in many different cities. You know, instruction is sometimes streamed online. So from abroad, you know, different professors may teach courses online in this age of Internet and, you know, easy access to um, to online platforms this has been really wonderful for an institution like this and the bihe also gives degrees so this is a really you know it's not officially recognized in iran of course because it would be considered to be illegal but there is this network whereby the high youth can get educated when they don't have options elsewhere because they're precluded from that by the iranian authorities
0: so before you get mm-hmm. back to this the story of the lady there have been times when the authorities have raided the BIHE, and maybe you could talk yeah. about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, of course, because this is a clandestine organization, an institution. Different students and professors and so on have been arrested in connection to this. And so these individuals affiliated with the institution, I mean, they're just trying to learn. You know, there's nothing subversive about this activity. They're simply trying to get an education. And so they've actually been raided very much like a home church or some other clandestine gathering would be raided in Iran. And so that has been difficult in terms of stability and really just ensuring that people can study without fearing that they'll be arrested for doing so. So thank you for pointing that out.
0: Yeah, thank you. Um,
1: But to get back to this young lady, you know, I was just floored because I... I had not spoken to her about that at all, and she was just so unassuming, and, you know, she had gone her degree from BIHE, and just the the story she was telling me about the lengths that they went to to actually get an education, you know, the way that they'd have to organize secret meetups and, you know, make sure that they weren't a group that was too large gathering in someone's home because that could sort of alert the, you know, tip off people who would report them. and. It was just really incredible to hear about all the efforts that they had made to to simply get an education. And the really wonderful thing is that her degree is recognized by many academic institutions outside of Iran because they know of the program, they know of the high quality of the program, and they recognize that this degree, although not formally conveyed through Iran's education system, is a very substantive, parallel, sort of like when, when you have no alternative, this is an alternative and, and they accept it. So that was really great to hear. But that was one memory that particularly stuck with me in respect to other human rights abuses. Well, as you know, the IHRDC doesn't only document abuses as they pertain to Baha'is. Of course, we document a range of abuses that happen to different religious minorities, ethnic minorities, student activists, labor union activists, women's activists, there's a whole range of issues that we tackle, you know, the way the judiciary works, um, the attacks on lawyers. So in the course of investigations for a track of projects that we did that related to human rights abuses against Iran's Kurdish minority, there was just incredible experiences, incredibly moving and disturbing, really, in our interviews with people whose almost entire families had been executed by the Iranian government following the revolution of 1979. There was one woman who recounted to me that there was a war in the provincial capital of the Kurdish region, Sanandaj, where the Iranian government was viewing the Kurds as a sort of restive minority, and they came in and attacked civilians with snipers and grenades. It was a full-on military attack. she had been recounting to me how, you know, she had seen horrible things like pregnant women being killed, young men, young Kurdish men going to just pick up arms. They weren't soldiers, formal soldiers, but going to pick up arms and never returning to their families. And these were like boys of 15, 16 years of age. And I think that set of interviews is definitely something that it's hard to erase from your memory, especially when, you know, there's so much emotion attached to it. And our job is to sort of look at all of this objectively and really either confirm or sort out the credibility of a lot of these statements, because not everything you know, reported about the abuses of that time are necessarily true, both from the government narrative perspective and also those from victims and survivors who may not have an accurate reflection, uh, recollection of what happened due to trauma, due to passage of time, so on and so forth. So our aim is to really look at this objectively and try to sift through the facts and establish you know what really happened but in the course of that you meet so many people who just undergone terrible experiences of losing their children you know in prisons when they've been arrested on grounds of being politically subversive and you know never not even being notified of their execution and only finding out later and still not retrieving the bodies and never being able to bury their loved ones. So these are stories that, unfortunately, we hear about on a, um, practically a daily basis, I'd say, in the witness interviews that we do, but these are memories that stick with you.
0: Now, earlier, Gisu, you mentioned the Iranian People's Court.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, is that still in session, or was that a temporary institution?
1: The Iran Tribunal was something that um, I'm very honored to have asked to been a part of. I was part of the prosecution team for that tribunal. The tribunal is not legally binding, so this is not a formal judicial proceeding. It's not something that has any sort of legal enforceability. What it was was it was modeled after, you know, similar effort, efforts like the Russell Tribunal that was established for Vietnam and that recently was established for Palestine. It's a people's court. So, you know, we conducted the proceedings like a formal legal proceeding. Witnesses were called. Evidence was tendered. Witnesses were examined by prosecution team. And there was a panel of esteemed international practitioners who served as judges in this matter, who had worked at, you know, in different cases before the international tribunals and had a solid human rights background. So it was a really, I think it was a very important symbolic, proceeding it gave color and sort of a model as to what a real proceedings for justice and accountability would look like in a future Iran um, or are on the international stage in respect to Iran so this was not legally binding just mm-hmm. but it was incredible it was over three days in The Hague where you know there was three days of proceedings it was covered extensively by media and the proceedings were live-streamed so that people inside Iran could watch this as well. And the incredible thing was that after you know we had concluded the proceedings and, and during, like after I had taken the stand and examined some of the witnesses uh, before the court, I received emails and phone calls from so many former witnesses that I had interviewed in my post at the Iran Human Rights Documentation Center, and they said, oh, Gisu, this is what you meant by some kind of justice. Because I had always told them that although we're not there yet, their testimonies and the, you know, documentary evidence and the photo and the video evidence that they provide us would hopefully one day be used in some kind of judicial proceeding or commission of inquiry or some other kind of formal process in the future. And I think up until that point, that had largely been something that, that they did not have an example for and once they had seen these proceedings and how it would be conducted and the kind of findings that the tribunal reached which was that there was strong evidence to show that the Islamic Republic of Iran had committed crimes against humanity in the 1980s i think that really gave a model for what that would look like so it was a very it was very important symbolically i think for that reason what is
0: your personal perspective of the future as you've been doing this work now for the last couple of years, specifically in the case of Iran?
1: In terms of what I see for Iran, I mean, there's no way to predict what will happen, of course. But my hope is that, you know, as the civil society has strengthened, as there's been greater consciousness, both like on the international level and inside Iran itself about human rights abuses that the government is perpetrating... That ultimately, whatever government is in power, will abide by human rights conventions that the Islamic Republic of Iran is a signatory to, like the ICCPR, the International Convention on Civil and Political Rights, um, and other conventions that they're that they're a signatory to. So the hope is to sort of pro, you know advance human rights norms, and th- and that will be my personal vision, um, and also to hold those accountable. Those who have been ordering um, and have committed and have been complicit in human rights abuses, that they will be made to account for their actions and that there needs to be a full record of what those abuses were and um, to have them answer for it. Because right now there's impunity. You know, there's just complete impunity when it comes to holding officials accountable for the abuses that they're perpetrating against their people. As I said, the IHRDC works on a range of issues, but some of the things that your listeners can look forward to if, if they come to the website is we're going to release a report on um, human rights abuses against the uh, um, Ahwazi Arab minority in Iran. So Iran is home to um, you know an Arab minority that is in Khuzestan province, and they have been marginalized and um, you know sort of politically, civilly, socially, and culturally. Um, discriminated against for years, and so we're going to release a full-length report on that in March 2013. There'll be a lot of witness statements from survivors and also families of victims in relation to that situation, and we're going to release them along with the report. So you can look forward to that in the spring, and we're publishing a bunch of other releases as it pertains to academic freedom, restrictions on academic freedom, continuing oppression of Iran's uh, legal profession and the independence of that legal profession. And we're going to be doing more commentaries, legal commentaries, and sort of reports on the discriminatory laws against women in Iran. So those are some things that we'll be focusing on in the coming months.
0: Well, Gisu, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about the yeah. Iran Human Rights Documentation Center.
1: Yeah,
0: thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Gisu Nia, Executive Director of the Iran Human Rights Documentation Center. You can find this interview and other interviews at www.abahiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you can go to the website www.bahai.org. We can call the toll free number 1 800 22 Unite. I hope you'll join me next time on a Baha'i perspective.
2: crown sent down the edict for the sea with achieve peace the townspeople read it. For four way of glory and height, Reciting stories and Orians, a warrior type. an army alike, recreate the Normandy site. Deploy, you appreciate the enormity, right? let battle him with the Republic or not. For all my soldiers. is the block, that's what we focus and plot to overthrow this echelon. Send a message to stop taking the focus. It's got to be a joke, cause it's not what we were told. It's in the promissory note of the trap. Them forefathers are crafted. Your fathers ain't mine, boy, I'm a bastard. Before fifth in my poem, got the right to bear arms. Y'all keep pushing me back. I'm about to blast it. That creed is captured in a prose. My flow's ominous, and obviously, the reason we rose the prominence. We documenting history here, the ends near. The pin bomber, grenade, the promenade is sincere. My folks rush to grab it and mash it full thrust. The first to have status and pull and hold a flush for control. They go nuts, yo. We rolling back to Cali, reviving the rush for the gold dust. Yo, we crush. The precious metal to dust for distribution. All you gotta do is breathe and receive the receipt restitution. Under pressure, we become both gems and grown men. It's like a jungle. Sometimes wonder why I was thrown in when my instincts seem to do more harm than good. As difficulties defended and still armor wood. Maybe I was never meant to be a champion. I'm standing downstream, panning for ambition to hand in. The was the mother of the invention of my character. The neighborhood good Samaritan holding the terror. Daring you to thwart my path, but try stopping the establishment of all ministers. This is the dichotomy. I gotta see the reconciliation take place. My offering for the intercession is birth, saving the Smith the wesson. I'm guessing God really needs neither, but I must if I'm entrusted as my brother's keeper. The challenge is discerning fan from adversaries. They move with similar fashion, A real man carries a heavier load. Shoulders and back bold The observation is in a simple conversation. You own. Me in the eye and tell me I'm not worthy of favor. The crop would never pay it if not for all our labor. We'd have twisted twisted, sign dots along the way. But it's hot where you will stay. I pray God to be your savior when the fires of propitiation reach the plantation. Thirty lashes in the dirty ashes, laying me a pavement. I'm afraid of laughing. Shortly after I'll be facing the wrath I ask for mercy Though I'm purposely in passion. And I'm certain the a forgivable offense When a true lord in the Stand Would never quibble over rent Wealth profited No man in his last days These flames will show you What you made of Dust Dust Yo, the dust that was born from Is this type the sin Sight is helping me to get right And I need assistance at times Be the admission The behind the suit And then my hope to find truth in. And then before these guys do them And then what's a legacy worth next to my metal you'll measure me first crushing this better we work The change not for pennies if anything the commodity trading is us for flakes of gold dust uh
3: me make of me a shining lamp and a brilliant star oh god guide me protect me make of me a shining lamp and a brilliant star
4: i was given my name and placed in this family told what to think in this life that they've handed they say they're right, but deep down I know that they are wrong So I gotta stay strong and keep holding on But it's hard when it feels like I've got no voice I'm treated like a child, so I've got no choice But to turn to my friends who make me one of them The pressure never ends, oh God Oh
3: God, guide me, protect me Make of me a shining lamp star, oh God, guide me, protect me, make of me a shining lamp and a brilliant
4: star, I know these are mistakes that I don't really need to make, cause it's in my own hands to shape my own fate, but I feel like I'm lost when the teacher try to teach me, preacher try to preach me, but only you can reach me. I know you're always there, I know you've always cared Cause I can feel that there is hope, but my vision is impaired By the clouds that have found me, as darkness surrounds me Oh God, guide me
3: Oh God, guide me, protect me
5: You can light the world for
6: Oh,
7: beyond the, the omnipotent the omnipotent say God, say God suffiseth God. all things above all things and nothing in the heavens or in the earth but God suffice, say God God all things above all things, and nothing in the heavens or in the earth, but God suffices. Verily is in himself the knower, the sustainer. Verily is in himself the knower, the sustainer, the Beyond it, beyond it, beyond it. Say, God, God suffices all things above all things, and nothing in the heavens or in the earth, but God suffice Say, God. Say God God sufficeth all things above all things And nothing in the heavens or in the earth But God suffices. Verily he is in himself the knower, the sustainer Verily he is in himself the knower, the sustainer Verily, He is in Himself and nowhere the Sustainer. Verily, He is in Himself and nowhere the Sustainer.